I'm Fiona Banner, aka The Vanity Press, and this is The Squirrel's Heartbeat, a series of conversations reflecting on the environment, art and activism. I'm glad that you accepted the invitation to be in residence here. It felt this year would be kind of a pretty key year for how we continue making work on this site with all the social governmental restrictions with the lockdown it felt more important than ever to have people still working on site and making content on site i guess i'm kind of curious about how it has been for you working in this very nebulous (laughs) but complicated space because a lot of people have access and agency to hear and finding your voice within it is one thing but then also publishing within this space be it the billboard you did a bit of a squirrel drag race going on there as an opening uh, statement to framing your work here to clang arriving and then You've been doing loads of little interventions and collaborations with the squirrels and the foxes. First time I came here, I met you outside and you're having a contretemps with a guy who was looking after the street and the pavements. And he was spraying glyphosate all around the perimeter fence. And there was a really complex and interesting conversation going on between you and him, which was kind of about the merit of weeds. That was my simplified take-home from it. Ever since then, I've been wondering what this space is. I still don't know what this space is entirely, except that it is a very layered and extraordinary space of engagement, and it's been an amazing place to think about making work. Making work is not placing something somewhere per se. It's about what happens when you place something somewhere. So the engagement with the foxes and squirrels, as I've put my receipt publications, which are maybe scrambled copyright manifestos or published ISBN numbers. And I've hung them up from trees and around the extraordinary fox homes that are here. And they do engage with them, obviously in a very different way to a human. That's become the work. How a fox might unearth a power sign which was uh, procured from the city of London and buried under some earth here is the point. It's not the sign, it's what happened to it. It's not the word, it's how the word was interpreted and dealt with and, and felt and ignored and buried and unburied. And um, <laughs> I guess as a local as well during the time when it was really hard even to go to the studio it was really hard to go and see any art it was hard to to engage with people viscerally in person it's been an amazing privilege to be able to meet with people in this open-sided yes freezing shed (laughs) spending that time here has allowed me to think about our vulnerability and also just talk a bit with other people about where we are. 
as we've been forced to pause, how then, when we take a deep breath and continue, do we do that? How we, as a species, start to really seriously reorganise ourselves and systems and ways in which we can do that and accepting that there is a lot of complexity and accepting that we maybe don't know the answers but the process is really fundamental. And rebuild language because we have to accept the power structures that are embedded in our language and how do we want to work with those and work against them and how do we want to reuse them. And how can that language even be appropriate to describe this nature that we're sitting in? How can we make that language hold responsibility for itself, for its own history, and also for its potential future? But like being asked continually as a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think one of the big problems with being an adult is sometimes you feel like you need to answer things quickly. And in doing that, we can miss important details. In doing that you can miss the question. (laughs) I'm sitting here with Michael Smythe and looking at his phytology sculpture and Michael I am going to introduce you and that's not an easy thing and you work in many different fields so Michael Smythe, artist, activist, producer, horticulturalist. When you started to become involved with this space, the Bethlehem Green Nature Reserve, did you approach it as an artwork in the first place? Because I know that this beautiful phytology medical garden that we're sitting looking at here is a sculptural work and was funded as a sculptural work and an artwork, so I'm intrigued. The one thing that I always was so confused about as a child was the constant, constant question of what do you want to be when you grow up? I remember just being struck as a young child that I actually would like to be many things. (laughs) And art was one of the subjects which allowed me to have agency and autonomy over how I could travel in terms of my research, my thinking, my doing, that sort of fast-tracked me into art school and training where I was exposed to, in Berlin anyway, in the 90s, the teachings of Joseph Beuys, which, you know, looked at usefulness and agency outside of the traditional gallery context. I was sort of more interested in the city, in the cracks, in the in-between spaces, in the sort of marginalized areas that were considered to be valueless, but actually there was huge complexity in. So all that informed my thinking around this space. The Phytology Medicine Garden essentially came about as a way to engage with the in-between, with the cracks in the city, with land, which is incredibly loaded, particularly when you look at the history of this patch of land. And I wanted to create an environment where I could engage with things like the soil, the seasons, and the people within and around my neighborhood. And starting this project, it was about experimenting with another way of cultural production that was 
a lot more exposed, I guess, to the elements in, in every sense. A lot more exposed to failures, to hot summers, to foxholes, destroying things, to all these other kind of factors that aren't easily controlled or don't need to be controlled. I guess it's giving up authorship to a degree, which is something I've always been interested in. We'd always known of this particular site, the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve, but we felt that it didn't really need an intervention like we were looking to do because it was already cared for by the local residents association. It turns out that actually they were beside themselves with concern because the local authority had designated this piece of land, which is a one acre chunk of the city with probably 85% woodland. They had deemed it as a development opportunity, mainly because they perceived it not as having the access that a park would have to justify its existence, which is a tricky thing to articulate. So we struck a deal. We would come in and cultivate a small corner of the nature reserve. We would then staff it with people skilled to interpret the site and also the medicine plants. It's notable that you had to justify the site and the credibility of it as a piece of nature because it so absolutely is a piece of nature but of course it doesn't have the normal signifiers of a park or a garden. It is much more a piece of land that appears to have been left to get on with it. So I guess then there are associations with abandonment. Yeah, and it's always changing and it's always slippery and it's always incredibly complex. We call it a cultural institute of exchange. We operate as a research centre in the broadest sense of the terms where visual artists, ecologists, neuroscientists, landscape architects can come in and get a bit lost and not really know what they're doing here. The hope is you, you might come with something, but you'll soon get distracted by something else and then find yourself here three years later, still trying to kind of work out what it is. And actually, for me, it comes back to that idea of complexity. I, I just don't want to believe that we like simple. I think complexity is important for our health. Yeah. <laughs> to answer your question about the medicine garden, because my training was in the arts, I liked the idea or the proposition of calling the medicine garden a sculpture. I like the fact that for some people they can adapt to thinking in that way and other people they just find it a bit befuddling. It's an invitation again to stretch one's perception. I like the fact that the squirrels digging in there don't give a hoot if I call it a sculpture and the various insects that live off the plants we grow, you know, don't care either. We started producing medicines here. The production of day-to-day medicines like cough syrups or chest rubs was really a way to get people into the medicine garden to learn how to identify how to harvest when to harvest how to kind of make preparations that are age old a way to hold this knowledge in contemporary yeah. times and yeah. empower people and it's very important I think for people to see the city as this generative place of opportunity and not separate themselves as beings from the landscape because it's urban 
the landscape here is diverse and rich and we need to start seeing that as something we should understand better and also take a more active role in being creative with it and I think that's where this place primarily started off as an idea of an artwork, as a sculpture, as a medicine garden, but actually it's a political project about occupation and protection of land and, yeah. and reimagining what cities could be like. Yeah. And it's not nostalgic. It's yeah. actually working quite hard, busy, complex piece of land with multiple outputs, multiple narratives, multiple ways of speaking, but most importantly, it's very futuristic. Yeah, and it is a piece of quiet activism. Obviously, you have the newts here, nature's activists. You have the bats that dwell in DJ Simpson's wonderful bat obelisk. Both of those creatures are quite significant here because they prohibit development. You're not allowed to develop on a site where there are bats or newts. It is nature as activism as I, I see it because you are holding this space against the forces around it. And what other species do you have here? Obviously the squirrels, the foxes, they show up. Bats, squirrels, newts, toads, huge amounts of fungi and mycelium and I mean every year we find different beings that we hadn't either noticed or had been here before. Particularly in summer we get a lot of migratory birds coming in because of the wetlands and it's interesting watching how summers are changing, they're getting hotter and the land is changing with that and and that's becoming more and more part of our programming in terms of getting people to see the first-hand effect of climate change through the kind of experience of being in this space. There's lots of learning that we need to crack on with now in terms of all the different layers of sound from the urban environment, it is life performing itself and you cannot pretend that you're in a space that is only nature. You can't be sentimental about nature in this space and you can't really be incognizant of the politics around nature when you're in this space all sorts of things like issues around climate change associated with social justice are playing themselves out and performing themselves around this space all the time. A constant challenge for us is how to create opportunities for people to feel they have autonomy here and yeah. have access to the space yeah. and that it isn't exclusively for one community or another. So Michael, here we are standing by Clang, my full stop sculpture. Seeing it not so much as a full stop actually, but as a deep breath. It has these coordinates engraved in it, which are the coordinates of DEFRA and the Home Office, which is uh, where it was previously deposited and surprisingly unwanted by Mr. George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, who had it uplifted. Here it is being a touchstone or a talking stone for these conversations around arts, ecology and the environment. I guess it needs some new coordinates engraving into it, which would be the coordinates of this amazing nature, cultural activist space right here in the heart of Bethnal Green.
I wanted to ritualise this moment. Before you do that, I, I saw the fox uh, ritualise it <laughs> earlier today with uh, some uh, urine. So, oh, <laughs> but yeah, excellent. please go ahead. Well, it's painted with squid ink. Maybe that's the appeal. It's great to see Clang in situ here. Quite a different situation than its last one, which was outside Defra in the Home Office. The squirrels seem to like it. It felt incredibly ritualized bringing it in, like the, the conversation of preparing to bring it here. And everyone unanimously thought that having the sculpture come into this piece of land in particular was incredibly poignant for our own political approach in terms of demarcating land, in terms of holding space, putting a bit of a, a full stop in a development narrative similar I guess to what you've done in the Dogger Bank with Greenpeace. Yeah it feels really good to have Clang here because it's the third sculpture in what I saw as an ellipsis so three full stops though now I think it should have been peanuts that was bought here because <laughs> the squirrels like it so much. And you're right, the process of bringing it in was highly ritualised and that we worked with Greenpeace on that also felt important because it was a continuation of the action. There was a very strong ritualistic element to lifting the other two sculptures up onto the Greenpeace boat when it came up, the Thames to pick those works up and it was great that you were there that day. I was surprised by how emotional that moment was somehow for a start I had not expected the sight of this boat you know the Esperanza meaning hope moored in the middle of the Thames though it's a ship not a boat I keep being told there was something about the ritual of all of that that felt really important as part of creating the agency for these works to be taken out to the Dogger Bank and deployed into the water as agents for change as a defence against a particular kind of bottom trawling and uh, destructive fishing and as sculptures for fish you know and we won't see those works again but the fish will. It was incredibly touching to be there to see those pieces off. And the sense also that that ship was then going off on the high yeah, tide. A really memorable moment and then jump cut to here last week where uh, the Greenpeace people came and really handled the installation of the artwork in a very impressive way. They're masterful at being able to work with the community. We blocked the street, lifted it up over the fence, through the canopy. The gentleman that lifted it in masterfully navigated the trees. <laughs> the ritual of that, the ceremony of that was, was quite special. Also the agency of Clang being here, because on one hand it's a sculpture, it's a punctuation within the woodland saying this is, it's an artwork in its own right, but also it's now taken on its own agency as a, a place for squirrels to eat their bits and pieces on and the fox to throw the rat against when it's trying to kill it and various different fungi that are growing up around. And then those two out in Dogger Bank, Peanuts and Orator, which are now marked on Her Majesty's Government maritime map. 
designating that area as being unsuitable for, in fact, dangerous for bottom trawler fishing. So that's a nice bit of cataloguing, I say. <laughs> <laughs> The Squirrel's Heartbeat is hosted by me, Fiona Banner, aka The Vanity Press, and was made in collaboration with Michael Smythe of Nomad Projects. All of these conversations were recorded at the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve in East London. Production Alice Walters, audio production and sound design by Lucia Scazzocchio from Social Broadcasts, and video production by Joseph Sikorsky. This series is supported by the Arts Council England and the Bethnal Green Nature Reserve Trust.